Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. Very good Friday morning to you as we welcome you along to the programme. We've got John Paul taking your calls at 0818 103 103. Anything you want to share with us. And we already have texts and WhatsApps coming in to 0862 103 103. And can I start by just paying reference to somebody who's contacted us about one of these new scam text messages that's doing the rounds haven't come across this one before but this one as the listener says really does look very very sophisticated because when you click on the link that they ask you to click on it actually takes you to what looks like is the HSE website and it's a text message that you may receive that says you have been in contact with somebody who has the COVID-19 variant. Even the wording of that is uh, wrong and then it says please follow instructions here and there's a link that purports to be taken you to the HSE test service and it says at the end of the text it's for to order a PCR testing kit. Now for a start you can't order a PCR test kit. You were never able to order a home testing kit. If you were going for a PCR test and it's the same today even those and there's only a small number of people now eligible for a free PCR test you have to physically go to get the uh, test. Now the HSE have been giving out free antigen uh, tests but you'd never get a text message like this but anyway it seems that if you click on the link which as I say is very sophisticated it brings you to what looks like the HSC website but when you're going through the link what then happens is they end up looking for you to give them your your card details because they're purporting to say you've got to pay for this PCR testing uh, kit and the fear is that elderly people, vulnerable people, people not so in the know about these text messages might get caught out. So certainly it's a new one. Haven't come across it before, but just be careful of it, be mindful of it and share it with other people. Talk to other people, let them know that this is a new scam doing the rounds. And of course, the fact that there is so much COVID-19 out there at the moment people getting very nervous about it and if people think they have been in contact and if people think they've been identified as a close contact people just might click on that uh, link and just staying with scam artists and and, and and thieves spotted this in the paper today that it's out of County Limerick this is a kind of a general word of warning to the farming uh, community. Uh, Gardaí, it seems, in Limerick, they um, foiled uh, a heist in County Limerick. Thieves set out to take advantage of the rocketing prices of 
fertiliser of all things. The senior guard yesterday advised farmers to keep bags of fertiliser away from the public road. There's been a spate of fuel thefts being reported in recent weeks and we know that's because of the rising cost of fuel. But criminals now have realised that um, setting their sights on fertiliser, bearing in mind that fertiliser has gone up by as much as 127% in price since January of last year. And that, of course, as we know, is to do with the situation in Ukraine and the Russian invasion. Russia supplies 25% of Ireland's fertiliser and of course the sanctions against Russia are pushing up the price right across Europe and the latest large-scale robbery bid in which a number of men attempted to steal more than 30 €1,000 worth of fertiliser and it was discussed this week at the Limerick's Joint Policing Committee and Detective Sergeant Mike Reedy said that on the 22nd of March the fertiliser was taken. It was during a delivery in Newcastle West. Now luckily it was recovered by Gardaí within a couple of hours and they located it in the town of Brough. The senior officer predicted an increase in fertiliser thefts due to the rising costs. So they're now encouraging farmers if you receive fertiliser, bring it close to home, bring it away from prying eyes rather than leaving it unattended and out in the open, which is what farmers would have been able to do in the past because there was never a fear that someone would come along and try to steal your fertiliser. And I have a funny feeling that that's going to be the first of many thefts or attempts of thefts that we're going to hear about. So please be careful. It's hard-earned cash that farmers are using to buy what is already very expensive fertiliser without some con artists coming along and stealing it from you. 0818 Now there's lots in the papers today about refugees and about the Ukrainian refugees arriving in this uh, country and I know we've had some reports on the news as well about it and I don't know whether this has prompted a text in from a listener who says, Hi Patricia, on the whole refugee issue in this country, maybe I'm in the minority here and it's probably not a very popular thing to say, but at the end of the day, we here in Ireland, we're a small country and we must be realistic about trying to cope with such large volumes of people coming into this country. We already have a shortage of accommodation and problems in our health system. Nobody wants them sleeping in warehouses or in tents. I think, says this listener, a cap or a limit should be put on the numbers and everything then that's possible can be done for the ones that we take into this country. It's all very well saying, oh, we can manage by paying children's allowance and social welfare to these Ukrainian refugees long term. will soon have us all heading back to a bailout utopia doesn't exist, says this listener who's wondering, are they in the minority in calling for a cap on the numbers? And, you know, and and I can see by the, the tone of a, your, your text, you know it's not it's not a popular thing to say. And I know you're being quite caring in how you're putting your text together in that you don't want to be seen as somebody who's turning your back on people who are fleeing from a war situation. And we have had from day one, the Taoiseach, the Thonist, uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs, all saying that there won't be a cap put on the number of refugees. If they need to come here for shelter, then we will welcome them with open arms. But I don't, I don't know if you're in the minority when you're sitting there thinking should we be putting a cap on the numbers and you are trying to be as realistic as possible about it and it is a very a very hard thing and a very unpopular thing to say that we return our backs on people who are fleeing a wartime situ- war situation and they are running 
they're running for their lives and grabbing their children and trying to get elderly people out of the country. And it is just a desperate desperate situation that they find themselves in and we have been very welcoming and very open in this country but this listener is making the point as a government and as a country do they need to stop and say will there have to be a limit put on the number that can come into this country I mean we're already talking about things that there we're not going to have enough places to house the expected number of refugees and I was reading uh, for, in the papers today the Irish Refugee Council, they came out yesterday and they're urging the government to pay people who have vacant holiday homes or spare rooms and they're saying that the government should be paying these people. They're saying for example on a holiday home if there was an offer of between 300 and 400 euro a month and that the holiday home would be handed over to Ukrainian uh, families. Nick Henderson is the Irish Refugee Council CEO and he was making the point that at the moment the government are relying on hotels. Now hotels are very costly and he also says they're not sustainable. At the moment they reckon it's about €100 Euro per night to house a refugee in a hotel. Now that's, if that continues long term, that he's right, that is not sustainable. And the, he's making this plea to say the government needs to do something, let's look at holiday homes. And that's coming at a time, as we mentioned yesterday, that the Cabinet have been warned that we are simply running out of bed spaces for the Ukrainian refugees. A shortage of beds is, is expected by as early as the end of this week and it's also believed that as many as 10,000 people could have nowhere to stay by the end of this month. At the moment, more than 19,000 Ukrainian refugees have already arrived in Ireland but as the crisis continues that number is expected to rise. On Tuesday of this week, the Cabinet was told that there, on average, 580 refugees are expected to arrive every day. And if we go based on those figures, and that's a guesstimate figure, that figure could be lower, but it also could be higher. But basing it on that figure, it would mean that about 5,000 additional beds would be needed by Easter Sunday. That's on top of those that are, are already identified across hotels, B&Bs and guest houses, state facilities and accommodation that's already been promised by people who've got vacant homes and vacant rooms. But if we look back to the last uh, available census that we have, that would be the 2016 census, that recorded 62,000 vacant holiday homes in the country. So the Irish Refugee Council is saying even if a fifth of that number, that would be 12,400. Even if a fifth of them became available, he reckons that that would go a long way to housing uh, refugees. And he then made that suggestion of the owners of those holiday homes, if they were given a figure of between 300 and 400 euro a month, if that was paid to release the uh, holiday home for use by the refugees, and it could be used as an allowance to pay for the extra costs of somebody pledging the house. And also, uh, they're saying that money should be given to people who are pledging accommodation in their own homes. He says there's no doubt that there there will be a cost in this but he said we'll be naive to stick our heads in the sand and ignore it but he said the current reliance on hotels is much more costly and therefore is simply not sustainable. So he, and he's They've done the figures on it and saying that if a fifth of the holiday homes came forward and if owners were paid €300 Euro a month, that would work out at €3.7 million. Euro. And then he says there's huge potential in the public pledges of accommodation as well. But he was saying that self-sufficiency and independence for refugees should be the first option. That's why he's pointing the finger at these holiday uh, homes. And of course,
course, only this week the Dáil heard that people who have already taken in refugees are already starting to see their household bills soar. And it was an independent TD from County Louds, Peter Fitzpatrick. He said he'd already been approached by some constituents and families in some families in his constituency who literally drove to the airport and said look I have a spare room willing to take people brought people home with them and the, the people have been staying with them since this maybe the beginning of March here now maybe more than a month they're getting no state support many of these families believed that the war would only last for a few weeks and these refugees would only be with them short stay and now of course the time is going on and these refugees are staying with them for a longer period of time than what they had planned and suddenly the bills are starting to rise and he's saying that there are families who really do need a little bit of help and that will be very much backed up by the Irish Refugee Council. So certainly something has to be done because there's no sign of the war on Ukraine ending any time soon and we've no way of knowing how long the refugees will remain here. All of them want to go home. They want to get back home as quickly as possible. But in the meantime, we have to plan now more for the long term than for the short term. And certainly I think the Irish Refugee Council is right. The hotel accommodation while it's necessary and it's needed at the moment it certainly is just not uh, sustainable a flurry of calls and texts reacting to the listener who was wondering were they in the minority when they're saying we're a small country and do we need to put a cap on the number of refugees coming in from uh, Ukraine Uh, just to give you a sample of some of the calls coming in Carmel in Skib says I agree with that listener while I do feel we have to help those fleeing the war and I welcome them into this country with open arms the last thing we want is those fleeing war to come to Ireland and then to be housed in less than perfect conditions and not to be able to access the basics because we've simply taken in too many people. That's why I feel we do need to limit the numbers due to the amount of people uh, coming and as a country we can only cater for so many and that the government really needs to look at that again and look at that idea of not putting a cap on the number. Anthony Glamire agrees I welcome Ukrainians uh, here. We've all been out doing the collections locally but my fear is we simply won't be able to cope and if we end up putting refugees then into poor conditions they are the ones that will suffer. Kieran then has a suggestion he says uh, Bantir Village he reckons that there are a number of houses owned by the council lying idle why are these houses not either handed out to our own people who are on housing lists or if for whatever reason they can't be used for people on our housing lists then give them to the Ukrainian refugees and he said I'm only talking about the town of of the village of Bantir, there's got to be other houses in other areas that are vacant by the council. Don't know how many the council have that are uh, vacant, but uh, Kieran reckons there are a number of them around. John and Mallow says hotels are receiving hundred euro a night to house the refugees. That's seven hundred euro per week. Then they're looking for people to give homes, and they're suggesting three hundred to four hundred a month. But if hotels get more, why shouldn't homeowners also get more? But I think the refugee council is saying that by paying hundred euro a night at a hotel, it's simply not sustainable. And that's why they're saying by paying the lower rate to homeowners, it would be sustainable and you would be able to house people for uh, longer. Hi, Patricia. I hope this message finds you well. It does. Thank you very much. Totally agree with your listener who suggests putting a cap on the number of refugees coming into this country. I'm not being racist. We have to be realistic. I feel so, so sorry for the Ukrainians fleeing uh, war, but we have to be realistic as well. Joe and Omanway also agrees we need to put a cap on how many are coming, how 
many Irish citizens are homeless and sleeping on the streets. We need to house our own uh, first. Um, and on and on, uh, so that's the type of commentary that we're getting in this morning. But there are a lot of people saying that the government need to be realistic. And I do think that's a valid point about because, you know, they're talking about warehouses and converting warehouses for refugees to, to sleep in. I mean, that surely can't be a long term solution to the problem. It, I mean, there, we have to now start looking at the long term, particularly when it doesn't look like the situation, uh, the peace is anywhere close to being realised in uh, Ukraine. Uh, so I think people are, and I, and I think there's a sense from the text and the calls coming in that people are being very caring and, you know, everyone's heart is broken for the people of Ukraine and that people are coming to this in with a very realistic view and saying that the ones that do come need to be really, really so looked after and we certainly don't want people coming and having to stay in substandard conditions. 0818 103 103 John Paul taking your calls. A reminder that today is our final day for the Racing Home for Easter Festival. We will have one more question for you later on today on the programme. Your chance to win a pair of tickets to go racing on Easter Sunday but somebody today, one of our listeners from across the week or it could be today's uh, winner will get their prize upgraded to dinner for two at the restaurant out at the races and then following at the end of the day they will spend an o- they'll get an overnight stay for two adults in Springford Hall Country House Hotel located 10 minutes away from the race course so do stay tuned for that and you can check out and purchase tickets for the Racing Home for Easter Festival which runs from Saturday the 16th to Monday the 18th of April at corkracecourse.ie The government has this week approved a plan to allow for the creation of new regional health areas to integrate both hospital and community health care and it's part of the key Sloan to Care reforms. To explain it further, I'm joined by West Cork Social Democrat uh, Deputy Holly Kearns. Good morning to Holly. Good morning, Patricia. And you're welcome to the programme. Now, is this, firstly, when I started hearing and reading up about uh, this particular new regional health uh, areas, is this plan in any way like the old health board structure? Um, No, I suppose it has some similarities in how it's divvied out into six different regions, but it's very different in terms of how it's set up. You know, we had to disband those former regional health services because they were so kind of uh, dogged by vested interests and political persuasion and stuff. However, the new proposed setup of regions would be to kind of tackle that and to ensure there's equal access to services. Um, And it's a very key component of Slauncher Care, Patricia. And the whole idea is that basically regionalisation would ensure that there's a fair sharing out of resources, that services would be provided in each region. So you won't have this kind of postcode lottery for access to services where good services are available in some parts of the country, and yet they're not at all available in other parts of the country. So it's about ensuring equal access to public health care. And there would be one head of services and that person would have actual legal accountability for ensuring that there's adequate services provided to date, there has never been any accountability in our health services. Um, so it would mean that there's actually a budget going to each of the six regions. Then that budget would be based on the population of the region, the socioeconomic profile of the region, the age demographic, all of those things. Um, but for everybody listening, Patricia, I'm not sure if everyone will necessarily know what Slauncher Care is. And this, you know, um, proposal, to this introduction of the regionalisation is a key component of Slauncher Care. But Slaunch Care is basically, you know, it's an overall national health policy. It's costed and tested. It's a cross-party policy for a national health serv- 
um, health service. And like I said, re re regionalization is a key component to it. So because it's, it is, yeah, it ha it's fair to say that the, the highly centralized approach to healthcare simply wasn't working. Exactly. So Sláinte Care is not revolutionary, but I think it really feels that way to us in Ireland because we're all so used to paying 60 euro to see a GP. It's impossible to imagine how the state could afford to pay for things like that. Um, for all of those things, but Patricia, it's not revolutionary. It would simply deliver what all other EU countries have, what most other EU citizens have, public health service where you get health based on need and not the ability to pay. We're the only country in Europe that doesn't have universal access to healthcare that is free at the point of need. And currently we have one million people on hospital waiting lists. I can't emphasise enough the impact of not having a national health service. And to give your listeners an example, I'll just, I'm going to focus on disability services because the geographical lottery in relation to this is shocking. Um, especially since the government is saying that progressing disability was supposed to remove these ge geographical lotteries, it's actually reinforced them. So in CHO4, the Cork Kerry region, um, Down syndrome Ireland survey confirmed that 64% of respondents in the Cork Kerry region said their children received no therapy of any kind in the last year. And that figure was 35% um, in Galway, Mayo. Um, and the HSC oh, in response to one of- that's desperately frustrating for families, isn't it? It is desperate. And the HSE, in response to a parliamentary question to me, revealed that the Kinsale Band and Carrigaline team, the community disability network team there, or the children's disability network team, sorry, is missing a physio, two occupational therapists, 0.5 of a speech and language therapist, and two psychologists. At a committee meeting in recent weeks, in response to one of my questions, the HSE confirmed to me that not one of the 91 children's disability network teams are fully staffed. Um, and we think, I think, you know, sometimes we have to stop and ask ourselves, why? Why do we have this dysfunctional health service? Why don't we implement Slauncher Care? And, you know, the reality is, is because since the establishment of our health service, it has been dogged by vested interests. And some people really benefit from that current model. Private health care providers basically benefit from that model mm. because the people who can afford to go private will. Um, and we've always so, been told that it isn't about funding. And we seem to, every time that there's a crisis in healthcare, the government will just pour more money into the health service. So the money seems to be there, but it's actually how we allocate it and how we spend it. So if, from what I can gather from what you're saying, these new regional health authorities will be able to plan, will be able to fund, and then will be able to manage the delivery right in their own areas. Exactly. So like I said, central component of Slauncher Care, um, and that was agreed in 2017. And then a map of the areas was agreed in 2019 by the former government. So it means dividing um, the areas into six geographical areas and integrating hospital and community services. And we need this because the HSE has become too large, too bureaucratic and too centralised. So it would mean regional areas would have more autonomy and budgets would be assigned to those areas based on need having regard to all of those different things I mentioned before, age profile, geographical spread. Um, and it's also important because it would lead to clinical and legal accountability for health outcomes in those areas, as well as spendings and budget. Um, and it would mean that when something goes wrong, like, for example, what happened in South Kerry Cams recently, that the book would stop with somebody. You, but so you mean somebody could, lose, somebody could lose their job? 
Absolutely. There'd be actual accountability for the first time. And like you talk about the money that goes into it. At the moment, we're spending 22 billion on health services. Um, But this money does go into a black hole. It's not just our opinion, but it's not just my opinion. I'm saying that leaked recordings of meetings with senior um, Department of Health officials revealed that those officials also believe there's a financial black hole, um, as well as recruitment targets that are what they called fake because everybody knows they won't be reached. Um, And there's also no way for the Department of Health to follow the money at the moment it provides to HSE because there there is no integrated financial management system, all of those different things. But so what happened this week? Uh, I think it was no surprise. So Donnelly bought proposals for the implementation of the RHAs to Cabinet on Tuesday, and he suggested three options. One, doing nothing. Two, doing the bare minimum. Or three, making the radical changes that Slauntercare envisioned. And the cabinet has chosen option two, doing the bare minimum. So they'll roll them out to a certain extent, but this will not provide the reform that we need. That minimalist approach would still see power centralised in HSE instead of regional areas being given autonomy, instead of being established with a strong legal footing with specific legislation, they'll be administrative only. So essentially, they'll be like satellite offices of the HSE instead of being independent. So that means that centralised HSE managers will remain in control instead of decision making and accountability happening locally, which we know has better outcomes. So it will inevitably lead to increased cost, further bureaucracy, all of those things. Um, And the minister said that the regional health areas will get their own budget. That seems to be the only concession, but it seems like they'll have little autonomy about how it's actually spent. So that's incredibly disappointing. Sunch Care was supposed to be a radical restructure of the health service, something that is so badly needed. um, And the manner in which the government is now proposing to implement those regional health areas is actually a betrayal of the vision of that policy. And it means we won't get the kind of So you're now saying that these regional health authorities are not going to work? No, not if it's actually carried out properly. Okay. And I suppose, Patricia, it's it's not really surprising that there's kind of a half-hearted attempt at Slaunch Care happening now because, you know, recently we saw um, key figures in the Slaunch Care advisory body. And one of the key recommendations of Slaunch Care, there'd be an independent advisory body because, you know, one of the things that came out of the Slaunch Care Committee, and that committee was chaired by um, my co-leader of the Social Democrats, Roisin Shortall, is that we can't task the implementation of this new policy you know the the department of health can't do that and the hse can't do that because they're the very institutions that we want to have an aversion to change so 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 we saw a number of them resign exactly so what happened was you know as you know we had the new government forming no action been taken and key figures in that independent implementation advisory body resigning citing a lack of political will. And then what happened? They did, the government decided that instead of that uh, body carrying out the first, one of the most important parts of Slaunch Care, which is regionalisation, they decided that senior figures in the HSE and the Department of Health would be tasked with implementing regionalisation. The very bodies, the very organisations who have that institutional aversion to it have been tasked with implementing it. And lo and behold, they're doing the bare minimum. So it won't actually amount to a national health service. It will be a a kind of a failed attempt at that, where we still see the interests of big private companies prioritised over the interests of 
you know, all of the people in the country who just want to have access to healthcare at the point of need. They want to ensure that we don't have, there's almost a million people on waiting lists at the moment. Yeah, and we, the, we have the to do, list yeah. For, okay, just some, just some questions in, um, Councillor Declan Harley, friends of uh, the Bantry General Hospital says, could you ask Holly how she sees Bantry General Hospital under the new structure? Is it going to be good for the hospital's future? I would say absolutely. The whole purpose of care is to provide healthcare at the point of need. So we spoke about that, that, you know, you'd have a budget for a region. And for example, if there were six regions, the area that Cork would be in, that budget would be spent based on the age profile of the area, the geographical spread of the area, all of those things. So, of course, if we had our own budget, we wouldn't be saying, oh, we don't need these services here. We know we have a huge geographical area. We know we have huge issues getting emergency services, getting, you know, acute care, all of these things. So finally, we would have, you know, a rollout of budgets where you had to provide, you know, certain services, necessary services, essential services in an area. And if they weren't being provided, well, then essentially that person would lose their job and somebody else would roll in. But somebody (laughs) else is worried about uh, with with all these regional, new regional health areas, will we see a lot of new managers and new teams? People always worry about the pen pushers and the amount of managers that we have within our health service. I think that's the problem that we have at the moment. We have this centralised model. And as we know, like a model for Dublin doesn't work in West Cork when we talk about the socioeconomics, the the age profile, the geographical spread, all of those things. So there's a lot of bureaucracy now. They're setting up children's disability network teams that don't work in this area. I cited the Carrigaline Kintail region and the, the lack of staff. What we need is more local autonomy over our budgets, over what we need, because we know what we need, you know, in a certain region. And we need that focus to move away from all of the bureaucracy. And I completely understand what that um, listener is asking, you know, at the Children's Disability Network teams that I spoke about earlier, like it just seems they've been a complete failure. What was the point in introducing these? They were supposed to remove that geographical lottery, remove the the long waiting list, and all they've done is amplify them. Um, and I think that is because we still have this centralised model. And what we need is, you know, regional policies and somebody who's held accountable for ensuring that those services are provided in a region. And like I said, this isn't some kind of, I think it can feel like a far flung dream in Ireland. Like, how could we have a health service like that? It seems so out of reach for us. Every other country has it. Of course we can have it. It's costed, it's tested. The only component that is missing is the political will to implement it. Okay, a lot of people um, have views on this. Caroline in Mallow says, I welcome the idea of these regional health uh, areas. Uh, Decisions could be made locally and that would be so important because when you make a decision locally, you know the value of a service, for example, like Mallow Hospital or Bantry uh, Hospital. But over the years, we've seen some facilities close. Heatherside Hospital in Mallow, money wasted closing down these uh, services and then a building going to waste. If local management were here making those decisions, they would know the value of those services. While Mervyn in Bandon says, why will this new system be any different than the last was set up by the, by the HSE was set up to replace the health boards and we were told that was going to be the be all and end, end all. How will this new system work regionally? Is it just the same thing but under a different name? Uh, people, I suppose, are sceptical Holly, about because we've seen change and we've we've heard talk about change in the past, and no matter what we seem to do with our health service, we never seem to be able to get it right. 
uh, yeah, completely understand where your listeners are coming from, and I share their concerns because our health service at the moment is entirely dysfunctional. It's almost a million people on waiting lists, another 250,000 people on uh, basic waiting lists for basic community services like speech and language therapy, all of those things. Um, but I think the thing that we need to realise is that we spend more than most other countries in our health services. And this is what we're left with. And that is because of the approach we're taking. And like I said, is completely unique in a European context. You know, the, the health boards that we had before, the reason we had to do away with them is because of the the political influence there was on them. And, you know, even today we see that, the, you know, the amount of money going into an area is more based on whether or not that area has a minister than whether the area well, that's needs what it that should money. Be. That absolutely is what it should be. Okay, and I'm way over on so time. So this policy reform is to move ex- precisely away from that. But I can see why the listeners like I know, that we had I know. those And I can see people are people. saying it just sounds like it's going to add more management <laughs> layers on top of more management layers. Just very finally, seeing as we're just on about health, what is your view on the Tony Houlihan and the secondment to Trinity College and the Department of Health paying his wage? Um, it seems uh, like a very unusual move from the department, something that's completely unheard of. And I haven't looked into the latest on it. I think since the that news came out, the minister has made some attempt to explain it, but I haven't heard that in full. Um, well, I, and, and it I'm didn't just make any hearing, sense to me at the time. I'm just hearing on a breaking news story that the Taoiseach yeah. says there has to be greater transparency and uh, they have, uh, they're pausing the, they're pausing the role uh, while they are waiting uh, reports, particularly reports from the health minister. OK. All right. Listen, we leave it there. Holly, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you. Good morning to you. That is West Cork Social Democrat Deputy Holly Kearns. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Some of your thoughts coming in. Anya's been on to us on WhatsApp. I don't know if anybody has uh, can update us and give some information to Anya, please. Anya says, does anybody know, please, what's the story with the Cork versus Limerick hurling tickets? Only terrace tickets appear to be available on Ticketmaster. Does anybody know are stand tickets sold out? Are Anya's pondering, have they not gone on sale yet? Does anybody know the stand tickets for the Cork v Limerick hurling match? Are they all gone? Are they yet to be released? If somebody can help us with that, please, and we can pass that information on to Anya. Thanks for your WhatsApp, Anya. We were discussing the health service and these new regional health areas that are going to be introduced back end of next year. And I think by 2024, they should be operational. Only time will tell if they're going to work or not. John, that got John then thinking, why are the government not sorting out the bonus payment for the frontline healthcare workers. Every time it's mentioned, says Joe, it seems to get pushed back and we just seem to hear more and more excuses and then we're hearing who's going to qualify, who's not going to uh, qualify. Everything else seems to be able to go ahead on time, things like the carbon tax. But when it comes to a bonus for our very, very stretched healthcare workers, it doesn't seem to be going ahead. At one stage, they promised it would be paid out by March. March is gone and still nothing. And then you look at the hospital workers at the moment and the pressure they are under with our hospitals so busy. They need that bonus now more than ever. The last time I looked into it, and I know we reached out to 
the nurses unions to see if they wanted to talk to us about it but they're saying because it still isn't finalised yet they feel they're not in a position to go public and, and talk about it even though behind the scenes there's lots of work and talk and negotiations going on because there does seem to be it isn't now a blanket €1,000 across the board as we it was expected to be at the start there seems to be it depends on how long people worked in a COVID environment and it's only for people who specifically worked who were front facing with COVID patients so there's a, there's a lot of working out as to who's going to get the money and who's not the last I heard Joe if this is of any use to you was that it's now due to be paid in June but you were right we were promised that it will be paid out by March and certainly no healthcare worker has received a cent of those bonuses yet but they're still working on a June to be the next date we will await and see now still getting in thoughts and comments on the refugee crisis in this country and this was kicked off by a listener who was saying that she felt that her message mightn't be a popular one and it wasn't coming from a mean place uh, but just felt with the size of this country and the way we're struggling already with accommodation do we need to put a cap on the number of Ukrainian refugees that we allow allow into this country and then that led to a, to a lot of other people who were worried because we're hearing that the government are saying that we're going to run out of bed spaces if the numbers continue the numbers that are continuing every day if they continue by the end of this month they reckon there could be an extra 10,000 and there simply won't be beds or accommodation for them and people saying you know even based on their own predictions is there not now a time to call to say do we need to have a cap when we reach a certain number of Ukrainian refugees do we say that that's it we can't physically take any more because a number of people in fairness as well are worried that if we bring the Ukrainian refugees who God help them are fleeing for their lives if we bring them in and then we don't have the adequate accommodation, nobody wants to see them in substandard accommodation. I mean, this notion of warehouses and even the thought of a warehouse and trying to make a warehouse into some kind of a reasonable accommodation for people who are fleeing the most desperate of situations. And, you know, you're going to have people, and particularly now, I think the ones that will start to get out in the coming weeks and even, dare I say, months, are going to have witnessed awful atrocities and, the, you know, they will bring all of that, what's in their minds and the memories with them will be just just shocking. Uh, anyway as I say a lot of people then are saying that that listener isn't in the minority. A lot of people were backing that listener up saying yeah that we do need to have a cap but not everybody feels that way including Tom by emails this morning Patricia. In regards to your listeners saying put a cap on Ukrainian refugees would any of those listeners not agree that putting excess refugees into warehouses where they can be safe warm and fed rather than leaving them in their own homeland, starving, freezing and in fear that their next day could be their last. Surely even a warehouse is better. Ireland has never turned away refugees as it's so close to our own heart from our own experience of our forefathers due to the generations that were forced to leave this country. As my nan would have said, sure, we'll make room for them somewhere. Kind regards. That's from Tom who says absolutely no way should we put a cap on refugees. And Michael in Castletown Bear is also backing that up. St. Tricia High, we above all countries should not even attempt to put a cap on Ukrainians coming into this country. Remember our history, how we fled this country in war and in famine. And those that who made it were so, so thankful to be accepted into America and Australia 
anything to get away from the butchering that was going on here in this country. We have idle school houses that have not been used. We've got community centres dotted all around the country, uh, especially in rural areas that just need a small bit of attention would put them right and it certainly would be less costly than hotels. So there's Michael and Tom both saying do not even consider putting a cap on the number of refugees coming. And I think from an EU point of view, it's 2%. It's 2% of the numbers that leave the country we would be expected to take. But of course, nobody knows how many are actually going to uh, flee. Someone else then says, Patricia, listening to your discussion on the Ukrainians coming into this country, you seem oblivious to what's the current situation in Ukraine is. Well, I'll stop you there. And I'm... The last thing I think you can accuse me of is being oblivious. I read up and watch up and look up so much uh, of what's going on in in Ukraine. Uh, I can't stop myself. At times I have to stop myself because I get so upset by what what is unfolding in in that country. So I'm certainly not oblivious to what the current situation is. But this listener wants to point out that Ukraine is the biggest country in Europe. And yes, we all know that. For most of the country, there's no war going on and wouldn't be particular to the west of the Dinab River. There's no real war going on. People are continuing to live normal lives, going to school, going to work and farming. Kiev is now almost normal as the Russians have retreated. You know, tell me that about what's what the suburbs of Kiev. But anyway, uh, those unfortunate in the east of the country, they are the ones who are in the war zone. They can safely move to within their own country with humanitarian support. And OK, and to update you on what is happening in Ukraine, that's exactly what has been happening. I think the last official figure I got was 10 million people in the country of Ukraine have been displaced since the war began. Four million have left and have spread out right across Europe, including the ones, the 19,000 that have ended up in Ireland. But four million out of 10 million means six million people have displaced to other parts of Ukraine. So many people are moving to other areas, but some are so nervous about it and the situation is so bad that they feel that the only thing they can do is to get out of the country. And remember, we're taking, even looking at the numbers we've taken out of the 4 million, 19,000 are in this country. It's a tiny, tiny proportion of the 4 million that have fled. The neighbouring countries to the Ukraine have taken, Poland in particular, have taken the largest amount. And that's because the Ukrainians themselves, many of them want to stay as close to their country as they can because they're so desperate to get back. And even the ones that have fled to this country all speak about any of the times you see them being interviewed on uh, TV or on social media, all of them are saying they just want to go home and even to see uh, so many of the refugees as soon as they arrive on day two the amount of refugees when you ask them what are they most looking for? Jobs. And it was heartwarming to see on the news yesterday some hotels who are really struggling to find staff that the Ukrainians, many of the Ukrainians are going to work there and I think we'll see a lot more of that going forward as well because the majority of the Ukrainians do not want to be a drain on Irish society. They don't want to be living in hotels. They don't want to be drawing social welfare. If we can give them accommodation, many of them will go out and find work and will support themselves uh, as well. So yes, I'm well aware of what is going on in Ukraine. Thank you for your uh, text. And then, hi Patricia, listening to your piece this morning about the Ukrainian refugees. We pledged our holiday home in Cork. We did it a number of weeks ago. Haven't heard anything yet. Is there any way we can make it available? It's a three-bedroomed house that could sleep four adults and three children. Now, the only I only heard yesterday, actually, the, I'm assuming you've pledged it with the, the Red Cross. They're still working through the amount of 
calls and pledges they got. I think over 20,000 people pledged either a bedroom or what you've done very, very generous, what you've done offering up your holiday home. And they're still working through it. So hang in there, hang in there. They will get to you. But failing that, if you think you've somehow be forgotten and, and I don't know how that would be, maybe get back onto the Red Cross and, you know, say, look, remember me? I've got this house in Cork because they will be only thrilled with it because that's exactly what the Refugee Council are saying rather than, you know, and a, a number of people had offered bedrooms in their house but they're saying we're, we're better off getting people in and making them independent and have their own homes, whatever that may be, if it's a holiday home or a vacant property, uh, whatever it is, it will be much better for them for the set, for settling in as well and for getting on with their lives in this country. But hang in there. They haven't got through everybody yet on that list. And then somebody else says, Patricia, where in God's name are we going to put them? In fairness, we can't house our own. There are too many coming in to this uh, country. OK, that's just a sample of some of the texts and calls uh, coming in. 0818 103 103. John Paul continues to take your calls just on a couple of other issues somebody was on to say Patricia rubbish has been dumped I was just went for a walk earlier this morning through the playground in Clonakilty there are Jack Dawes ripping bags of rubbish it was placed inside the wall near the entrance who in God's name did that could somebody responsible please pick up those bags and if the jackdaws get to it it will be all over the place and shame on whoever has done that in the lovely playground in uh, Clam and then Tony was on just wants to give a word of warning to people who perhaps are using dating sites Tony says I went in a dating site uh, previously but I just want to warn people I went on to a website which looks very legit but when you sign up you have to buy coins so you can talk to women on the site for example for one euro 99 cent that will buy you three coins those three coins then will allow you to message three people so that's how this particular dating site makes its money however they give the impression that all of these people were in the Cork area and there was a chance therefore that we could meet up for a real date but in fact uh, Tony says when he purchased his coins and started messaging people people are from all over the world and also he noticed when he started messaging people it wasn't about dating or relationship it seemed to be more short term relationships like one night stands well one night stands if it, the people are dealing in the Cork area I don't know how the one night stands are going to work but Tony says just as a word of warning people need to be very very careful when it comes to uh, online dating websites 0818 103 103 John Paul taking your calls you can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103 C103 Jobs With Munster Technological University Enhance your career prospects With MTU's range of full-time, part-time and professional courses Succeeding together with MTU.ie Dano Supervalue in Mallow They're looking for checkout operators, counter assistants and shop floor assistants Call 022 21662 Ground workers are wanted for McCroom and for Cork City. CVs to jobs at hamiltonfrench.com. Cleaning staff wanted for St. Gobnet's Nursing Home in Ballyagram. Email mora at st.com. 
gubnets at gmail.com. And an office administrator is required for full and part-time position in the North Cork area, 87 286 You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Now, sadly, back in January of this year, we lost the wonderful author Colm Keane following yet another battle with cancer. I spoke on this programme so many, many times with Colm following publications of his many stunning books, especially the ones dealing with near-death experiences. Before he died, Colm completed one final book, which is very aptly entitled Journey's End. And joining me to discuss his final wonderful offering is his much-loved wife, Una O'Hagan. And it's just wonderful to have you in studio, Una. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. And you're you're so welcome. And I suppose the very obvious question is, how are you doing? I know it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, after 36 years together, it's really like losing half of yourself almost. Um, You know, you kind of think you hear something, you say, oh, I'd love to tell Colm about that. I must. And then you realise he's not there. Uh, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving to Cork and uh, I saw the sign for Skibbereen. And we had planned to go to Skibbereen. We always did it a few times a year down to Baltimore and across to Shirkin. Um, we kept saying we'd do it. We never got to do it that last time. So it's those kind of things that get you, that kind of blindside you. Um, but I know he's he's in a better place. Yeah, yeah. And as, as I mentioned, it was another battle mm. uh, with cancer. Uh, Did he know, uh, did did you have long to process that it was a terminal diagnosis this time? Um, We were, I'll give you the timeline. We were talking to you in, by phone in kind of September, October. That was it, yeah, for the last book. For the last book, book, the Book of St. Bridget. Bridget, And Colm had discovered a lump on his shoulder. Now, as you say, he had had cancer 10 years before, throat cancer. He was given a 20% chance of survival. Um, So when this came along, um, we we were worried, but typical column, he wanted to finish the book and then he'd get it checked out. So from October till about the end of November, um, it was scans, tests. They were trying to find out it was cancer. They spent a lot of time trying to find out what kind of cancer it was and they never really found out. But uh, we then discovered that it had spread, spread to his lungs and to his pelvis. So um, we're at the end of November, we were told there was there was no hope. Um, Now, he was offered treatment. He was offered chemotherapy and radiotherapy and uh, Colm turned them down. He said, um, no, the first thing he said when he was offered chemotherapy was, I don't want to lose my hair and beard again. (laughs) You know, I I don't want to be that sick person. I, I, I want to live the best life I can for the time that I have, yeah. you know, and he did. Yeah, yeah. And he was, because when when we were sp- speaking about the, the book on St. Bridget, I had said to him and both of you, oh, what's next? And mm-hmm. and you said, oh, that's it, that's it, I'm done. <laughs> and he said, well, I, I'm writing. And, yeah. and, and, that, and that was this, this yes. was Journey's End. Yeah. So he, he continued, had he finished, had, did he continue that? He had it pretty, he had it finished and kind of ready to go. Um, he had been working on it for, it was about 10 years of research around that. He'd spent a year and a half writing it. And just before Christmas, he kind of looked at it again, tinkered with it a little bit, but finally got it sort of print ready. And he was ready to to go um, with the publication. 
But in fact, on the, the Friday, literally a week before he died, we were talking about whether to bring it out. And we thought he could. Uh, he, he seemed to be OK, but then he deteriorated very quickly and went into the Waterford Hospice sort of Monday, Tuesday and then died on the Friday. But this he want this was the most important book mm. to him because this was the culmination of all his research into what happens when we die. And his he said he, the thing he kept repeating was death is not to be feared. It's uh, it's not an end but the beginning of something entirely new. And he wanted people yeah, to know that. And, and you know, the, the, the going home, we'll meet again, and, and heading for the, for the light. They were the, all the, the previous uh, books. Mm. And it, this is the, it's the culmination of all that work. Yeah, yeah. Is, is in this one book. It, it? Absolutely. It, like those books that you mentioned, they're really um, based on the near-death experience. So I'll just give a quick yeah. explanation if yeah. people don't know. It's when people die temporarily, they journey through a tunnel, they see a bright light, head towards that light, they meet relatives and friends who have passed and they come to a border or boundary and they're told to go back, it's not their time. But what Colin wanted to do in this was to find out what happens after the boundary. You know, when you do die, when, when you do go over that river or bridge or whatever it is, what happens? And he did that by, I mean, he'd spoken to well over 100, lots more than 100 people who had had the near-death experience, read widely uh, on NDEs, as they're called, went back through history, through um, biblical writings. Like way back Islam, in history. Absolutely. You know, right back to Newgrange yeah. and, you know, um, the Greek philosophers like Plato. And, and the amazing thing is that this recognition of the light, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but also the near-death experience. People have known of it for thousands of years. Um, so that's what this book was about. And the title just speaks for itself, Journey's End. And it's all the different religions, all, no matter what religion you are. Yes. They're no all matter, interlinked. They uh, all back it up. Exactly. Uh, and I'm glad you picked up on that because Colm said the most important thing about heaven, what sums it up most is the presence of the light. Yeah. And a lot of, like, in Ireland, we're kind of... We cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
we know about Christianity and Catholicism probably more than anything else. So I was amazed to find out that uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they all have light at their core. Mm. I mean, it's as fundamental to those religions as it is to Christianity. And yet you have people who have had the experience and um, have seen the light. And Colm had a great description of it. You know, it's where we want to go. It's where there is total love, total joy, a love like you, not like on earth. Uh, that we've never experienced never before. Never experienced before. And, but there's also complete understanding, a comprehension of everything. And this led Colm um, to, to make the point that it's, it's our consciousness that survives death. Yeah. Um, you know, it's some people will say that's the soul, but it's, 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 it's whatever phrase yeah, you use. Yeah. Language is actually very difficult in this subject. It's a bit clunky. Yeah. But yeah, your consciousness, your soul, whatever it is that makes you, you continues on. Yeah. And, and all of the people who he would have spoken to over the years who had the near death experience. They, they were almost saddened that they were brought back into, well, do you know, it's back into their lives. It's life. funny and you say that. they were leaving behind. Because you know. I was, yeah, I was just reading. Before I came into you, I, I had the book and I opened it up. And it's the story of a woman called Anne. And she had a near-death experience. She said, I'm not, I'm just reading a little yeah. bit. I'm not a religious person, but I remember phrases from the past like lifting your soul. That's the only way I could describe it. I didn't want to leave. I'd have loved to have stayed longer and I felt very sad coming back. But that's what happened. I was told to come back and I did. The feeling has never left me. I don't have a fear of death now. When someone close dies, I feel differently about it. I don't grieve for them. Even though I'm sad and cry, I feel they're gone home. Yeah. And, you know, when I was when I was reading this book and, and I was reading it while I had uh, COVID last uh, last week when, when I was off and I was very conscious that this was Colm's last book. And, and part of me was sad and saying, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll never read another one of his books uh, again. And that was the one thing I remember in during one of the interviews for one of the other books going home or, or we'll meet again. I remember saying to him he had never had a near death experience, but I remember saying to him, do you fear death? And he's sitting almost in the same seat that you are now. And he looked at me and he didn't even bat an eyelid. He didn't even stop and think about it. And he said, no, I don't. But and then we ended up discussing it's who we leave behind. Yes. Is is. But but and, and, I, and I'm assuming right to the end, there was mm-hmm. no fear for no, Colm. No, yeah. absolutely not. On the Monday, he died on a Friday and the Monday we went into the palliative care consultant. And the first thing he said to her was, I'm dying, uh, which is a pretty brave thing to have to. You yeah, know, to come out and say, yeah. and he said, "I want to die a peaceful death in tranquil surroundings." That was the only thing that concerned him. He didn't fear the process of dying. He didn't fear death itself, but he wanted to be in the right kind of environment. And because he had had time, and this is something we all need to think about it about. He he was ready for it. He was prepared. Uh, he said, and it's clear in this book, you, you have to sum up your life. You have to look back and think, was I, what did I do that was good? What did I do that was bad? You have to be able to forgive yourself, forgive other people. Um, and that ties into the near, uh, near-death experience and the life review and all that. But he had had time to do that. He had thought about it. So, no, he didn't. He didn't want to go, yeah. you know. I mean, Well, it, he didn't want to leave you, no, I think, exactly. was, 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 the, was the big one. Yeah, but he also had 
tons of ideas you yeah. know um, like he was 70 but age didn't matter to Colm I mean I was looking through his um, uh, filing cabinet and he had all these ideas and I thought I looked at them and I thought that's a good idea that's a good idea yeah. that's a good idea and he he, he just um, he, he wanted to continue doing what what he loved doing but it wasn't to be yeah and he, he had such a curious mind yeah. didn't he, he oh was, he did yeah. and was interested in people yeah yeah know? yeah he was he was he was terrific he, he really was terrific and 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 of course you know with some people will be aware you lost your your beautiful son mm-hmm. uh, Sean uh, a number of years ago um and again, and, and I'm sure I discussed it with Colm at some stage, Colm's interest in near-death experience and afterlife wasn't in any way to do with Sean. No. Sean he had that interest before Sean he ever did. became sick. Very much so. Sean became sick in 2005 and died in 2007. But Colm actually became interested um, in the near-death experience in the early 90s. I think it was 1990. He saw an article in a newspaper about a man who had obviously had a near-death experience but didn't know what to call it. And this piqued Colm's curiosity and he started reading about it. Now, Colm had lost his father when he was aged 11, something I think that really affected him very deeply. So he was always... And he was just that kind of... Man, you know, he wanted to answers to the big questions. You know, what are we doing here? What happens when we die? What's the meaning of a good life? All that, those kind of things. But no, it wasn't associated mm. with Sean's death at all. And yet you, uh, he is and you're, they are together now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because this is the thing about uh, Colm's kind of definition of heaven. We, um, we survive, our consciousness survives in a reality made uh, by ourselves, where we are surrounded by the things we we love, the things and the people that we love, um, and our consciousness creates this. So we're, when when we finally cross to the other side, we meet the people we want to meet. Yeah. And they're happy to meet us. Yeah. And, you know? and that's what we, in so many of the stories that's reflected. Yeah. And and I think there's great uh, strength or, or comfort from that, mm-hmm. knowing that you are going to meet yeah. um, uh, your loved ones. And when Col- Colm started producing these books, mm-hmm. did people then almost come out of the woodwork to say, I want to talk to you, I have a story to you tell. You know, that's a very interesting question because I was thinking back and Colm said he was going to do this book I kind of looked because Colin always had, you know, left field. He never went for the obvious. And but but I trusted him that because he always had good ideas and uh, he kind of put out a call for people and uh, it was deluged, absolutely deluged by people. But people who were very nervous speaking to him because and they would usually start off by saying, you'll probably think I'm mad, but now I think the great tribute to Colm's work is that people don't say that nowadays. No, no. And he would promise them, I'll only use your first name and they would be fine with that because he always insisted on using real names, you know, not not pseudonyms or anything like that. But there was a real kind of, oh God, I I can't tell anybody, people are going to think I'm mad. But like even last night I was talking to um, an old friend uh, and a friend of Colm's very solid, down-to-earth kind of guy. Loves his horses, farmer, all this. You couldn't think of a less airy-fairy person. And he just said quietly to me, he said, you know what happened to me? I went, oh, really? And he said, yeah. He said, I was the happiest I had ever been 
and I met saw all my people. And that was all he said. Wow. But it's just you can the most unexpected people have experienced it and the most unexpected people will tell you about it. Yeah, and I think that that's what it, I think anyone who is facing a terminal diagnosis, I think this book, I think, is, is really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's a book, you know, there's two, what do they say? There's two certainties in life, death and taxes. taxes yeah. we're, all, we're all going to face yeah. this one day. We need to be able to talk about yes. death yeah. and, and what's going to happen mm-hmm. afterwards. Yeah. Well, we, we're very good in Ireland and we're right to praise ourselves that we are more open about death than a lot of other Western societies. We're very good at the rituals after somebody has died or inquiring about people. But really, we need to think more about what happens what what we face because nobody's going to escape it before it mm. and this is where this column talked about the 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 life review where before um before you pass over you look at your whole life and it's a kind of a judgment like we have ideas of you know St. Peter the pearly gates and the big book and whether you're let in it's not like that at all yeah you have to uh, usually it's you judge yourself which I thought was brilliant. I'll give myself a pass. I'll go straight through. (laughs) But you judge yourself through the eyes of others and the impact that you have had on other people. Uh, And I think that that kind of made me stop and think, right, our actions have consequences. Mm -hmm. We might think we're doing something for the good of other people, but we're not actually. And Colin was very strong on doing that kind of work before you die. Mm. And all the books that you wrote together, particularly all the ones on the saints, mm. did you work very well together? As I mean, I, I used to love having both of you yeah. here in the studio. You, you always used to know who take that one. I'll just yeah. take that one. You take this. Yeah. And he was he's been only producing the interviews. He's been only saying nearly he yeah, would be. Yeah, yeah, he was great. <laughs> he was great. It was it was all it was always great fun. Did you work well together? We did. Now, I mean, we'd been thirty six years together, so we kind of knew each other. We had um, we were both journalists, so you know how it is you know you need a beginning a middle and an end we talk about how to approach a story or we'd say that was good or not good or you know but uh, he was he was quite difficult to well I wouldn't say quite difficult he was tough to work he had high standards perfectionist I imagine a total perfectionist and he also had a very clear idea about what he wanted to do and so sometimes when I was trying to make my point I'd say to him something like oh you're very hard to work with and he'd say that's not what Bert Bacharach said, because when he did his music programmes, he interviewed Bert Bacharach yeah. and um, he, Colm got him to, to sign a CD and he, Bert Bacharach wrote, great to work with you, Colm. <laughs> so he'd say, that's not what Bert Bacharach said. And I would go off and make myself a cup of tea and soak for a while. Did, come did, back. I, I, am I right? Did you meet in the canteen in RTE? Is we that did. How you, it, I was mean, that how you first met? Absolutely. Oh, I know. It's so mundane, isn't it? Uh, Colm... He worked in the radio centre. He was seconded over to Morning Ireland. And there was a tradition there of, um, you know, after after the, the programme, just going for breakfast. And mm. there would be a big gang of people. We'd all, it's so, so difficult following COVID that you can't do that I kind know. of thing. But it's kind of like at a table, almost the size of this desk. Everybody would just chat. And I didn't say anything, which was quite unusual for me. But our eyes met across a greasy fry and (laughs) the rest was was history. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then and did you actually work together? Never. Never. No, never. never, No. Colm loved radio. He always said the best pictures were on radio and because you go straight. I I ended up I loved news. I loved television. 
Um, like you were talking about his role as a producer. He never lost that. I remember he produced the 1990 summer Pat Kenny show, uh, Italia 90. And he had the idea of sending Nell McCafferty to Italy. Was that his idea? That was his idea. What a genius move. But it's a genius because anybody else would say I'll send a sports reporter. But it wasn't about sports. And she was amazing that And she was a wordsmith. She described everything but it was about more than just sport. It was about the soul of the nation yeah. and she won a Jacobs Award she did, for it. She did, she did. Okay, uh, Patricia, it's such a pleasure listening once again to the lovely lady Una O'Hagan, the Queen of RTE Newsroom. My <laughs> deepest sympathy to her on the passing of her wonderful husband. May his gentle soul rest in peace. Somebody says, real, real pleasure listening to Una today. Would she ever go back on the TV? <laughs> Would you? I'm too old. (laughs) (laughs) And then Kat says, I was so impressed with uh, Una and Colm's young son, Sean, who he wanted his parents to buy a dog after he passed. Could you ask Una, did she ever get a dog? Will you ask her about that? I I know you were sharing a neighbour's dog. Yes, exactly. Which was terrific. But believe it or not, I now have a horse, courtesy of Colm. (laughs) Go on. <laughs> well, Colm, he was a real softy for animals. And there's an interesting thing, a chapter in this book about animals and whether you meet your pets in heaven. Yeah. And you do. <laughs> but, um, oh, it was a lovely horse. He fell in love with her, sort of rescued her. And we looked after her for about a year and a half. She's sort of living in a kind of tough conditions. Uh, and then just before Christmas, we bought her and she's absolutely beautiful. He called her princess yeah. and she is. Oh, wow. Isn't, so isn't we didn't that... get a dog. We got something bigger. No, OK. okay. <laughs> uh, what a beautiful, kind and softly spoken lady Una is. Such meaning in her interview. I wish her all the best in the future. That's from uh, Deirdre. What's the name of the books of somebody and where is it available? It's Journey's End, The Truth About Life After Death. Available in all good bookshops, oh, yes. yeah. I'm, I'm sure. Patricia, listening to your conversation this morning with Una regarding the next step after and where we go. I watched Dr. Cassidy's programme on TV uh, this week in a similar conversation she was having with an author friend of hers and her thoughts about what happens on that next uh, journey. It's a great discussion. We need to hear more about it in the the media. We need to talk more about it. Mm -hmm. And that's the point, isn't it? We do need to talk more about death and dying. Yeah, I think we've got a very childish uh, idea in a way. Uh, Either we, we ignore it and that it's not going to happen to us. We're going to be the amazing exception. Or we have, we remember our catechism and think of, you know, a God with a beard and clouds and, you know, it makes life, instead of it being a depressing subject, it actually can bring a lot of, I wouldn't call it joy, but peace. Yeah. I mean, for those last six weeks that Colm and I had together, he talked a lot about the past. He looked back to his mom. You know, um, one of the last things we did, we walked on Yall Beach, which was his favourite place and kind of replicated where we had when we went to Yall, which was his, you know, hometown. Um, that was the first thing we did when we got together and went down to Yall. And it was nighttime, tide was out, moon was out and it was beautiful. So, you know, rather than because you don't know when it's going to happen. You know, and for somebody to be taken unexpectedly, unexpectedly, there's all those unspoken things that you would just say to yourself, I wish I had said this. I wish I had said that. It's funny. I was the one thing I was talking to John Paul in the office this morning when we were discussing your book. That was the one thing for I think for unexpected death. It's just dreadful. Whereas. Knowing yourself and Colm, you you talk because you were great to talk with each other, which Mm. was fantastic. 
So you were able to prepare in in, in, in some ways. Yeah, and and yeah. I'm sure with his organisational skills, he was mm. probably trying to dot all the I's, was he, and cross all the D's? He was. Yeah. He did all that, even down to, um, I have an old banger of a diesel car and he had a nice new fancy automatic. And we even went out into the little car park in Dungarvan. He said, I'm going to show you how to use this. <laughs> so, I mean, they were... He just had thought of yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh, and so it was really kind of him. And that's it's a very kind thing that you can do for other people. Be organised. Don't let the world, the entire world, land on somebody after you pass. They'll have enough to be doing, to be and dealing with to, the loss. And then with bereaved people, I mean, when have you found that some people don't know what to say to you, how to talk about Colm. Should I mention Colm? Oh, my God, am I going to upset yeah, her? I mean, how do you feel about that? There are various differing reactions. I mean, I know uh, situations in the past and I'm not proud of them. There was one lovely man who I worked with in RTE, didn't meet him all that often, and his daughter died. And I never mentioned it to him because oh. I couldn't. Yeah, I didn't know what to say. But having been on the receiving end of two deaths that have really impacted me I understand what people are going through you know and it's nice if people ask how you are or mention Colm or talk about a memory of him but it's okay if you can't do that that's that's fine yeah it is yeah and I know people and people are kind and they and and Mm -hmm. they don't want to upset people and I can because I had a friend of mine who lost her beautiful son in in a tragic accident and uh, she said you know being in the supermarket seeing a woman nearly falling in on top of the frozen peas to to get away to avoid absolutely and she said you know all they have to say is I don't know what to say that's even enough actually that's the best phrase I don't know what what to say say. yeah that's it what's next for Uno (laughs) Have you plans? Well, I'm hoping to kind of take the summer off, but believe it or not, Colm and I had another book, which we did during lockdown. Okay. Um, Scandalous story. Okay. Victorian, one of the most famous men in Victorian London, Irishman, uh, brought down by women, drink, you know, squandering money, etc. So it's a complete departure. So I don't know whether to bring that out or not. And or where, just where were you at with it? Is we it had finished it. We it had out. finished it and then we did the, the, the Bridget book, you see. Yeah. And then um, then we decided you will bring out Bridget first. And, and actually on the Bridget book, and I was thinking of you when there was so much talk about St. Bridget's Day. Yeah. Was, was Colm thrilled that it's going to be marked for next year? Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're both going yeah. to take credit for that. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah you should. You should. Listen. But it was, I mean, Bridget, he, it, well, it, it wasn't a, a popular idea at the time, but Colm had this uncanny ability just to go with the flow to know what was going on in the zeitgeist if yeah. you want to, to put it that way listen it's another fantastic uh, uh, book I mean and definitely his best his his, his best um, it's with great sadness that he's not sitting here with, here with us today but listen uh, you're, you're it's just delightful to have you in studio bring out that other book and we will love to have you back <laughs> in studio again the book is called Journey's End The Truth About Life After Death and it's written by Colm Keane number one best selling author Uno Hagen uh, pleasure as always thank you for that thank you thank You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Thank you. We've an answer 
to the listener who is looking to buy tickets for the Cork versus Limerick hurling match and is looking to get stand tickets went on Ticketmaster.ie and there's only terrace tickets available and I was wondering what's going on there. Well, I'm now told that only terrace tickets for the game are on general sale via Ticketmaster. Stand tickets are available, but they are distributed via the county boards. So you're going to have to get on to uh, a local club in order to get them but you can get the terrace tickets via Ticketmaster but stand tickets through the county boards and thank you for a number of people uh, on to us pointing that out and can I say happy birthday to somebody where's that birthday request Leo Carroll in Kinsale is celebrating his birthday next Sunday Leo can I tell you you share your birthday with me I'm Sunday as well happy birthday to you Leo from all your friends at work in Bandon Co-op in Kinsale and of course my birthday on Sunday means it's John Paul's birthday on Monday are just a day apart so we'll be wishing John Paul happy birthday on Monday and I'll be asking everyone to be kind to him if you're ringing in on Monday now our racing home for Easter festival we have we need one more qualifier well a winner because our daily winners are all picking up a pair of tickets to go along to racing on Easter Sunday Racing Home for Easter Festival is across three days at the Cork Racecourse live music most stylish lady event on the Easter Sunday and plenty of children's entertainment on the Easter Monday including a family fun race a day we have a pair of tickets that we've been giving away every day this week and then later on uh, in this hour we'll put all five names into a hat and somebody will have their prize up Graded, which will have dinner for two out of the restaurant, a four course uh, meal, a race card and then of course an overnight stay in the gorgeous Springford Hall uh, Country House Hotel located 10 minutes from the race course. Okay, our final question and again text or WhatsApp the answer please and our last question Gordon Elliott and Jack Kennedy are predominantly associated with A. Flat racing or B. Jump racing. Gordon Elliott and Jack Kennedy predominantly associated with A, flat racing or B, jump racing. So send your answers A or B, whichever you think it is, along with your name and address, your text or your WhatsApp 0862103103. Get moving on that, please. And we'll announce today's winner, whose name then will join the other four winners across the week. And somebody gets their prize upgraded. Get texting or WhatsApping on that, please. And in the meantime, let me go back to some of your thoughts coming into the programme. Tom was listening to my chat with Una O'Hagan talking about her late husband, Colin McKean's last book called Journey's End. And Tom says he would love to have met Colin McKean and Una and sat down and have chatted to him, to him because he absolutely adored all of, ta- of Colm's books over the years. He always found the stories in the book so interesting. Well, if that be the case, Tom, you're going to love Colm's final one for sure. And Tom says an example of a sign of death or a death about to happen. He says he remembers many, many years ago a relative who passed away but before the relative or before they heard that the relative had passed away there was a very loud knock on the front door you know the old big door knockers that are on some doors there was a very loud knock so somebody went out but there was nobody at the door they think oh that's a bit strange and then next they got a call to say that their relative had died and Tom said in their house they were convinced that it was a sign of death impending uh, and then they heard that the, the cousin had uh, died he's glad that Una is continuing on with uh, Colm's work well I don't know if she's going to going to write because the, the body of the work and the research was all Colm's she just promised him that she would bring out his final book and that's, that's what she's doing at the moment some of your texts in uh, to 
to us. Hi, Patricia. This is on refugees. And we're back again to, this is Tim in Cork saying that there has to be a cap on refugees coming into this country. If not, Tom fears that it will turn Ireland into a most racist the, the most racist country in the world. So this will occur due to inequalities in all aspects of our lives, housing, food, heating, employment, health, crime, etc. Currently, people are afraid to express their views due to being classed as racist. But let's be honest, the government are obliged as representatives of the Irish people to house Irish people. Are we forgetting that we, we here in Ireland do have a housing crisis? If we continue to pour refugees into this country without capping it, it will be a disaster in all aspects both for the refugees and for the Irish people. Let's be practical. Let's house as many refugees as we possibly can. We have a humanitarian obligation to do so at the expense of destroying this island of ours, says uh, Tim in Cork, who's worried if too many come. Well, there will eventually be a cap in that it depends on how many people leave and flee Ukraine, then it gets spread out across all members of the EU and that's where eventually there will be a cap and the last time when it was expected I think that 2 million people were going to leave based on that we would take 2% which which means we were taking 100,000 at that time but that number is going up and up and up so I, d- I don't know where that number actually is at now Our, will we be able to get an accurate number on how many people have actually fleed uh, the country as I say the majority of them are staying close to Ukraine because they want to be able to go home uh, and very quickly and then it's not only housing that we need to worry about with all of the refugees coming a listener says I hope all private schools will step up to the mark as well as the state run schools all of those poor children that are arriving into this country will need an education Uh, lack of school places will be as big a problem as housing and schools by all accounts have been fantastic in getting as many children as possible into school places 0818 103 103 John Paul taking your calls The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing community and business supports all across the county See corkcoco.ie Presentation of funds from the Christmas lights display at O'Mahony's in Kilbarry That's going to be made to the Friends of Bantry Hospital West Cork Ambulance Service and Co-Action Dunmanway. That's happening this evening in the Parkway Hotel in Dunmanway. Music tonight by Finbar Dennehy and family. For more musical society, are hosting their concert, Live in Living Colour. It's on tonight and tomorrow night. Tickets €15 Euro on sale by calling 086 Kildallery Bingo will be held in the newly renovated old store in the Creamery Yard this Friday night. There's an option to play inside or outside in your car with a jackpot, €1,920. And Bingo in Mallow GAA Complex is on tonight, 8.15. They've got a jackpot of €2,550. All funds raised from the bingo goes towards the juvenile and senior teams and the upkeep of pitches at the GAA Complex. And Bally de Hob traditional Irish music festival is taking place this weekend with performances from Formina and a Dog uh, on Friday and Martin O'Connor Trio tomorrow Saturday. Tickets can be priced at ballydehobtradfest.com Can I give a very quick mention I mentioned this earlier on in the week to a scrap metal collection that's happening tomorrow it's a fundraiser in aid of Glamworth GAA and the drop off point is the old creamery yard in Glamworth village and it is tomorrow if you've got any scrap metal 
between 10am and 2pm and if if you've got a larger item that you can't deliver they they have a team ready to go out and uh, sort out collection for you you can call William at 086 108 but if you have items that you want to drop off tomorrow morning the old creamy yard in Glamworth any uh, any old scrap metal they include things like trailers water pumps electric motors hay hobs, batteries, silage balers, mowers, milk buckets, agitators, ring feeders, slurry tanks, radiators, any type of cast iron, any kind of scrap metal and all of it will be collected and sold on and it's a fundraiser for the Glamworth GAA Development Fund. Now staying with fundraisers for the GAA, a novel to hollow GAA fundraiser entailing a special Ukrainian jersey commissioned by Kerry footballing legend and fashion guru Paul Galvin is said to become a collector's item and joining me with details of what is a very special jersey is Stephen Lynch who is with the Duhalo Junior Board he's their chairman good morning to you Stephen Good morning, Patricia. Um, how, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. You know, you've named the jersey the Dynamo Du Hollow. Yeah. Talk to me about who came up with the idea for this. Well, we've had, um, I suppose, there's been different fundraisers going on in Du Hollow for, for, for many years. And one of the major ones it is a few years ago was for Haiti. And uh, a Kishkin builder called John F. O'Connor and Liam O'Garman from Boherbui, they were very much involved in it. And... Um, they had an idea about doing a jersey for for Ukraine, and um, both Borobuy GA Club and Kishkem GA Club got together, and we we sat down with John F and um, and Liam, and we had a we had a, a great conversation, and we said it would be great if we could do something for um, for for a charity uh, in association with Ukraine, and um, did a rise for that meeting. John F was and Paul Galvin. Everybody knows Paul Galvin. Yeah, and. Um, as you said, fashion guru, and um, he was very, very, very enthusiastic about getting involved. He uh, he was given full rights to kind of you know design the jersey in, in, in what he would like himself. Uh, we we wanted him to be happy with the jersey. We wanted him to to get involved with the jersey, and um, he came up with a we have to say a stunning jersey, you know, in sport of. Um, in support of our Ukraine. Now, we need, we need to explain the jersey. This is where you wish you were on TV and not on radio. We're going to do our best to describe it. The design is inspired by an old Kiskame GAA jer- jersey yeah. and you've marred there's, that with the Ukrainian colours. Yeah, that's right. And um, there was a, a club, there's a club in Duala who had a, a similar away kit to, to what, what we have, at, what, 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 um, what Paul came up with. But the sash was important because... Um, Dynamo, Dynamo Kiev had a sash on their jersey. They were a white jersey with a blue sash. And then I think they, they, they changed it there maybe in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. But um, so I think Paul was keen to have to bring back the sash on the jersey. And um, as, as, as John F. is involved with game and uh, he kind of mentioned you know, that there was uh, this jersey with a sash on it. So again, we had uh, the Ukrainian colors, blue and yellow. So um, it's a blue jersey with a, with a yellow sash. Wow. And Paul Galvin, more than willing to get on board and help you oh, out. Paul, Paul has been absolutely fantastic. He came down from Dublin there one day um, in the middle of March, came down from Dublin, when Clarny, we went over and met him. And he had a jersey. He, he had it done up. He, his sports company were able to do a jersey and the turnaround was absolutely amazing. What they did was having a sample jersey for us that we could have start promoting it. 
and then you know sending it out to, out to clubs and kind of doing a bit of PR on it. But he's been absolutely amazing and supporting it and um, staring on social media and getting uh, GA players involved and helping us as well. So it's been absolutely fantastic. And um, will members of Duhalo GAA wear the jerseys at some stage? Well, we 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 hadn't we hadn't gone down that far yet at the moment. Um, I, I suppose we, when we were initially talking about you know maybe there might be a set of jerseys we we would be able to wear. Yeah. Uh, we haven't gone down that road yet, but it, obviously, listen before Cork GAA did a commemorative jersey, and they wore it for a game. Yeah. Prairie did a commemorative jersey, and they wore it for a game. So we we actually haven't gone down that road yet in relation to uh, it would, it would wearing be, jerseys. Yeah, it would be a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? Oh, to be fa- to be yeah. fantastic to do, yeah. But uh, but I suppose we 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 just want to see what the reaction. No, we've had a great reaction so far. Uh, we've set up a we had a meeting with the clubs in Duhallow. They were very enthusiastic about it, and uh, we've kind of a depot in Bohaboy English game that we kind of if we need to get the jerseys, we get the jerseys out to different clubs in 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 in, in Duhallow. We've set up an online thing now. There's there's um, jerseys gone off to America, Canada, hey. Italy, Wales, Sweden came in last night, and then around Ireland as well so we've had you know the the reaction to it has been fantastic and we've been delighted with the reaction brilliant and, uh, brilliant so it's not just limited to the Duhallow area it's, oh it's no no we- anybody who wants the jersey is more than welcome to to, to support us um, I suppose we got an initial run of 400 jerseys and we're saying well and thanks to the generosity of many local businesses to John F and Liam and even Jerry Pat O'Leary there in ministries as well who, who went with Jerry with, with, who went with John F out to Haiti there in I think it was 2010 now, they're all coming back involved with this as well, you know, because they're, you know, again, the generosity of the locality has been amazing. I know certain clubs have done collections for Ukraine already and they've had countless goods collected and um, uh, that were taken, that were shipped off to, to, to different parts of Ukraine already. Yeah, but people have been so uh, generous. People oh, have been so so do, you, do, you, do you reckon you'll have no problem selling the 400? Do you reckon you'll do another run? Well, we hope to do. We, <laughs> We say well, if we got if we, if we got near enough to the four hundred sold, we we do kind of do a pre-order for maybe smaller jerseys yeah. if they wanted them for kids because they start with size small and then they go up to up to two XL. So um, we said right, and thankfully, the all the money that's raised from selling the jerseys goes directly to the Irish Red Cross. So if we sell the four hundred jerseys, the, two, the twenty thousand goes to uh, to the Irish Red Cross because the generosity of the local businesses have covered the cost of the first from the jerseys. Isn't that so fantastic? That's just it's just fantastic. Well done. So how can people buy one of these jerseys? Okay, so um, a local GA club, the Hollow local GA club, or um, they can contact. Um, we have done up. We've we've set up online now. There's a GoFundMe page. If you want to type in Dynamo Duhallo, and uh, I was just mentioned as well, we have Maeve, Maeve Walsh who's doing an online Facebook gig on Saturday, and uh, she's going to promote that, and all proceeds will be donated to the Dynamo Duhallo uh, jersey for Ukraine. So that that's amazing. So there's a GoFundMe page. There's uh, we've links up on our social media on the Twitter and, and um, clubs have it on their website. Cartier have it on their website and all their social media accounts as well people so there's a link there for buying no, online jerseys so people have no, no no problem getting it listen well done to everybody involved it's it's ter- terrific and Stephen just want to have you with so many Ukrainian uh, children arriving in Ireland as war refugees do you expect many of them will get involved in local GAA clubs? Well, well I hope they will and, and, and GAA has always been very welcoming and um, you know, I would hope that they would get involved. I, I'm, a, I'm a school teacher myself, and um, after midterm break, we had to, the, the boys were coming into class, and they were talking all about Ukraine. And you're kind of saying, 
um, you know, is it writing or wrong to be talking about it? But there's so much there's so much information out there at the moment that you know they all have this stuff. And then, oh well, if a fella came here, I'd like to be friends with him. So yeah. you've all this kind of things are very welcoming. And you know, kids are you know, I suppose when kids come out and say make a statement, you know, you kind of listen up and say, well, hold on, there's there's something wrong here. And um, like we saw with the pandemic and all the local clubs and other associations as well have been very welcoming and very helpful. And, and sport uh, you know, is a great way to help children oh, completely, settle, completely. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and make exactly. friends. Yeah, and make yeah. friends and get involved in the local community and then parents get to talk to each other and you know, they get going to schools as well as well. So listen, I'm sure that um, whoever come around that, uh, or whoever comes in, um, you know, every club, whatever they're, whatever they're playing, soccer, rugby, golf, whatever it is, that every club should be uh, welcoming them and getting them involved because like we don't know what they're going through yeah. what we don't know what families they've left behind and you know you see the recent news stories as well and all the shocking, um, the shocking story and, and it's, it's it's very disturbing especially for kids yeah. and we just want to give them you know give them their childhood give them an opportunity to, to flourish and uh, as you said sport is a great way to, and to do that and please God then when they return home to their beautiful country of Ukraine they'll take their hurling and football skills back with them oh, and they might set up their own little clubs in Ukraine listen uh, Stephen a pleasure to talk to you good luck with it thanks very and much for the show thanks a million for joining us uh, good morning Thank to you bye bye Stephen Lynch there who is Duhalo Junior Board uh, Chairman on that very special jersey and, and, and I love the fact that they've called it the Dynamo Duhalo uh, jersey a fundraiser for the Red Cross with their work in Ukraine. Now our reporter Mairead Tuig is today focusing on Easter travel both at home and abroad and this week she paid a visit to Cork Airport uh, to and spoke to Visit Cork about the local attractions that are on offer here. Bags are packed for Easter getaways as schools close their doors for two weeks from today. The summer schedule at Cork Airport is underway, with over 40 schedule routes being served by eight airlines. Communications manager Barry Holland says passengers have started heading away for Easter breaks. What we would find is that our sun destinations are extremely popular this time of year. We do have a certain amount of people as well that will be going on city breaks. Uh, so our sun destinations to the likes of the south of Spain, uh, parts of Italy, France and the Canaries, they are all very popular at the moment. We are seeing a certain level of pent-up demand in the market This is probably as a result of the fact that people haven't been able to go on a foreign holiday with the last two years. So over the next two weeks and starting realistically from this Thursday and Friday, we will see a significant uplift in passenger numbers passing through the airport as people are going on a short break over the Easter holidays. The advice to anyone travelling out of Cork Airport is to arrive 90 to 120 minutes before your boarding time. 100% of our passengers pass through security in 30 minutes or less. Just last weekend, for example, 95% of our passengers passed through in 15 to 20 minutes or less. So we are obviously uh, not as badly impacted as our colleagues in Dublin are. We are assisting Dublin with security trained security personnel. But here in Cork Airport, we would advise passengers to present at the airport between 90 minutes and 120 minutes before the flight is due to board. Pat Dawson, CEO of the Irish Travel Agents Association, says demand for air travel is good. The flights are very, very full. And uh, as you're aware, Easter is coming up now. And I don't think there's a seat to be had out of Cork. Yes, we would would like more capacity out of Cork. Aer Lingus have reduced capacity out of Cork, which is a pity, but we have uh, other capacity in with the Ryanair and the likes. But hopefully uh, Cork will, will grow again uh, and grow. It was uh, very high numbers 
was the fastest growing airport before the, the pandemic in the country and that'll get back to there uh, in the next 12 months I hope. For those who are staying local over the Easter holidays, there were many day trips and staycation options in Cork. Head of Visit Cork, Seamus Heaney, says Cork has so much to offer. I'd often say to people, you can, you know, if, if you're struggling to find accommodation in the county, um, in, in the honey spots we call it, you can always base yourself in the city. And we have some amazing attractions all within about an hour and a half drive from the city centre. But equally then if you're based yourself in the county, we have plenty of things to do between northeast and west of Cork. Seamus says there's always been a good demand this time of year. We'd have always seen it, but it'd be a shorter period. Now we're seeing people staying for maybe that day longer, which is fantastic. Um, it's fantastic for the hotels, it's fantastic for the accommodation providers, the restaurants locally, the network the transport network. So, you know, people are doing that little extra day and that, that makes an awful difference. And thanks to uh, Mairead and uh, happy Easter holidays to all the children who are breaking up from school today. OK, our winner, our latest winner on our Racing Home for Easter Festival and our last winner of the week is Annette Kremen from Tomes East in McCroom. Congratulations to you, Annette. You've just won a pair of tickets to go racing on Easter Sunday. Now we'll put Annette's name into that with our four winners from the one from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. And after the break, we'll announce the over this is the Court Today replay on C103. We put all five daily winners for our Racing Home for Easter Festival into the hat and the overall winner is actually today's winner Annette Kremen from Tomes East in McCroom Congratulations to you Annette You are heading out racing uh, on Easter Sunday You've got your admission card your race card reserved table at the restaurant you'll enjoy a four course meal overlooking the track and then that night you'll pop along with a partner friend uh, stay for two at Springford Hall Country House Hotel located just 10 minutes from the race course and congratulations to all of our daily winners and our thanks to everybody involved in the Racing Home for Easter Festival for this prize this week and you can get tickets if you want to go racing over the Easter weekend at corkracecourse.ie Now let's get some suggestions of movies for the weekend Mark Malone our movie reviewer uh, Good afternoon to you Mark Hi Patricia uh, You're very welcome Okay you went uh, You saw two movies One is The Bubble And one is Dog And we have a quick trailer From The Bubble We are one of two movies In production right now If we fail The studio is going to go down I'm not a magician I know you're not a magician Oh my god it's Minnie Driver oh, I love her This movie is going to make The world forget About all their problems <laughs> What we're doing is edgy It's real Crystal just did a TikTok with a dinosaur. Why do you look like Benedict Cumberbatch right now? Hello, I'm Doctor Strange. Oh my God! I don't like it. Stop being Benedict Cumberbatch. All right, we've we've got a movie about making a movie. Exactly. Yeah, during um, a pandemic, ah. and uh, that's why it's called the, the Bubble. Yeah, because uh, this is from uh, John Apatow, who got the idea when. Um, he read about the current movie, uh, the current uh, Jurassic World movie, which is being made. Uh, well, I think it's, they've finished it now, but that was made during the pandemic. And uh, the only way they were able to do it is by uh, putting together this bubble with the, where all the actors would just stay in the same hotel and, uh, and they wouldn't go outside of that. And they did have problems. I mean, they did have to, sh- to shut down filming at one stage. And so he kind of got the idea of that. So uh, this is um, an idea 
that he got that. And it's about the making of a dinosaur film, uh, which is called Cliff Beasts 6. So they've, <laughs> they've already made five of them. And so this is the sixth one. And uh, like a lot of these movies, they're made in England. So they go to England and they stay in this very, very kind of old fashioned and big hotel where and that is the bubble where they're tested constantly. Nobody can move outside of uh, that bubble uh, whilst they're making the film. And so Judd Apatow has decided to make this film, which is basically not just simply about the making of a film. It's a satire also, not just of that, but also on actors. And the thing about uh, John Apatow is that a lot of his, um, a lot of his scripts, a lot of his writing, is from his own life. And obviously, he has um, experience in dealing with, uh, you know, uh, people who make movies, uh, people who produce movies, like he does, and 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 actors. And it's a kind of a, a satirical kind of look at how films are made. And of course, this within the bubble. And um, the thing about it is that um, I wished actually that. It, it was a bit kind of nastier and a bit kind of that the satire was a bit kind of more direct, really, because it's actually really kind of soft. It's almost like he doesn't really want to offend a lot of the actors that he's taking the mickey out of here, you know. But there's lots of kind of uh, references to the way in which kind of actors behave during the making of films like this. For example, at one stage, one of the actors walks off set and somebody goes, um, "What? why did he do that? And somebody went, that's what you call the storm off. <laughs> so obviously he's had experience of that in the past. David Duchovny is an actor in the, the film, but he keeps wanting to change the scripts because he thinks he feels, you know, he knows better. And uh, as the producer says to him one stage, but you're an actor, you know, we've got a writer. And Duchovny says, are you not aware that I'm one of the producers here? And somebody said, well, you're not actually, you're just one of the actors. And he was like, well, I'm, on, I'm an uncredited producer. So there's an awful lot of this kind of stuff going on. And the only problem is, well, one of the big major problems with the film, it's only got a, like a 23% positive rating, I think, uh, in um, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, is that it's just not funny enough. And that's one of the things that I read. That's one of the main criticisms of this. And it's not like Judd Apatow to kind of get this wrong because he's got a terrific, you know, background in success and, and moves like, you know, the, the, this is 40 the 40-year-old virgin, knocked up, and films like this, which are all hits. Unfortunately, this one is a miss. And it's a terrible shame because you're constantly waiting for somebody to say something really, really funny. The camera will switch to somebody and they will say something and it won't be particularly funny. And that's its huge main problem because, of course, you know, it's meant to be a comedy, but it doesn't really, really quite work. And I think that's a, that's a shame. Yeah, I saw someone describe it as being mildly humorous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, all the time. And the thing is, I don't think I laughed out loud at any of it, but I did smile on a couple of occasions. You know, there are Peter Servinovich does come up with a couple of really, really good lines where I did kind of grin and, and kind of it kind of lightened my mood ever so somewhat. Um, but it's just a shame that uh, the film wasn't really funnier. Um, what's interesting, though, the, the, the process of making though these kind of films, though, is, is kind of interesting. And they do show that because, of course, they've got dinosaurs on screen and they've got to use green screens. And that's kind of interesting. And they didn't scrimp on the, the CGI dinosaurs. And they're pretty good. And that's it. Actually, when they show the dinosaurs, that's a film I would have liked to have seen. I would have liked to have seen Cliff Beast 6, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> uh, rather than this. And the other thing is, oh, look, I know I talk about this every week. It's two hours, six minutes long. It is way, way too long. And that's another one of the criticisms of it. I was watching uh, Saturday Night Live last week, and um, I think Pete Davidson did a song which was about 90-minute movies. He said, I want to watch a 90-minute movie. And, um, and he lists... 
uh, a number of very successful 90 minute movies down throughout the years as if you know it can be done so i'm not the only one who kind of complains yeah, about it yeah. an hour in all right you do go i've got an hour of this to go and it's it was a bit of a slog and it was a bit of a shame but it was always interesting but not necessarily funny okay so mark it out of 10 I'll give it five. Five out of ten. Okay, the movie is called yeah. The Bubble. Now, the second movie you watch for us is a Channing Tatum uh, stars in a dog. Yeah, uh, he also produces and he also co-directs oh. here as well with a guy by the name of Reed Carolyn, with whom he's worked on a number of films in the past. He worked with, you know, I think he produced the, the Magic Mike film. So they've got this kind of relationship. And what's interesting is that the, the previous film is about, you know, a bubble and trying to make a film during a pandemic. They'd actually started this in 2019. Uh, I think it was maybe 2020, and um, they had to shut down uh, the film. They couldn't do anything about it. They they just couldn't get the film made, and they actually stopped for something like nine months and then kind of started off again. And what's interesting is that, uh, you know, Channing Tatum had kind of t- took a step back from uh, the movie-making industry for the last few years. He's hardly been in anything. Um, but uh, he's in a couple of movies now coming out very soon. He's in a kind of an action adventure uh, with Daniel Radcliffe, and he's in uh, the next Magic Mike film. And I think what's interesting is that, obviously, over those nine months, he was preparing for Magic Mike. So <laughs> there are times during this movie when he's incredibly muscular, oh. and then other times he's not. <laughs> But it's about this relationship he has with his dog and um, what happened because of those nine months um, where they weren't filming, they spent time with these, there's four dogs playing one dog here. And uh, so he managed to spend a lot of that that time, those nine months, building up this relationship with this dog, um, which of course helped the filming by the time they actually got back to uh, to restarting the filming uh, once again. So he's a former army ranger and um, one of his um, uh, former uh, army ranger buddies has passed away and he was in the canine division and he had this dog and the dog went to, um, Afghanistan with him and but the dog has because of the the subject nature of what the dog does in the army he has a a touch of PTSD and so the dog is actually quite aggressive and Channing Tatum is given the job to bring him to the other side of uh, the United States to the funeral of his former handler Uh, he can't fly because of the PTSD PTSD, because the dog won't fly so therefore he's got to drive him and it's basically um, about that it's about that journey uh, across America Um, Channing Tatum trying desperately to be able to kind of try and communicate with this incredibly aggressive dog Um, the film has been kind of um, advertised as kind of a comedy. There are comic moments in, in the film, uh, but it's actually quite a serious film. And it tries every now and then to kind of look at the effects of PTSD um, whilst it wrapped up in a kind of a semi-comic kind of um, road movie. And it, I'm glad to be able to say that it really, really does work. It's not for kids. It's a it's a 13, I think, rating, uh, which I think is about right. So don't be showing it to your eight-year-olds, whatever you do, because there are a lot of serious issues um, you know, being exposed yeah. here. Yeah. But it is it is very, very entertaining, and uh, I'd certainly recommend it. So it is a dog movie, then? Um, well, it's 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 about the relationship of this man and and this dog, dog yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, as their relationship kind of gets better, as they begin to kind of bond uh, across the German the, the journey across America, they do get involved in adventures. There are comic moments as well when he tries to smuggle the dog into a very very high class uh, hotel. That's kind of funny, um, but it's um, yeah, it, it is very very entertaining, and yeah. I liked it very very much. Indeed. It's an hour forty, Patricia, hey. which is perfect, <laughs> and and I, I I liked it very much indeed. Okay, Mark. Out of 10? I'll give it eight. Eight out of ten, okay. And the movie is yeah. simply entitled Dog. Okay, listen, thank you for that, Mike. Um, Mark, have a lovely week. 
And we'll chat to you again next you Friday. Too. Thanks a million. That is uh, Mark Malone, our movie reviewer. Dog, someone said, what was the name of the first movie Mark spoke about? Uh, the movie was called The Bubble. Thanks for that review of that movie, Dog. It's one that Mary is planning on watching. And Mike says, hi Patricia, I came in when you were speaking to Una O'Hagan earlier. What a lovely lady. And like you, I loved the interviews with her and her late husband, Colm. I wish her peace and love into the future. And can I wish you a happy birthday for Sunday and a happy birthday for JP on Monday. Have a lovely weekend to you both, says Michael. Thank you, Michael, uh, for that. OK, that's where I have to go. Somebody was asking about uh, Derry Girls and uh, did they miss the first episode last night? No, it's next Tuesday night at 9.15 on Channel 4 is the first episode of the final series of Derry Girls. It's all over the papers because they had a premiere last night in Derry. That's the reason you're seeing so many pictures of it. But no, it's next week. OK, that's where I leave you. Thanks to John Paul for producing. Nick Richie for the afternoon. Talk to you Monday morning. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.